the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All of us from time to time have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I, I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of a number of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson, great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would honor. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly, aha, there is the voice of God instructing me and making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that he can speak to us through his word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly inform ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that? I think it is elusive, and I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation, because I think Scripture's very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith, and, and, their, and their foibles, I, th- I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And, and we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he, but he speaks to us because of his greatness. All right. So toward that end, then, um, it, it, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not? It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, here's the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master. We're the subjects, he is the king. But it also says we are the children, he is the father. You know, it breathtakingly intimately, he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom. But every one of these metaphors is a human relationship. And, you know, Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your, uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication. And it's two-way communication. And... I think when we read Scripture, Scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize His voice. 
It's, it's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a, a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with him. All right, now let's talk about that because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody I think with, with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take. And that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with, uh, with your siblings or get along with your, uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, 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 it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we, we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of of God hearing from us and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive because it requires upon us as well to be listening as well as talking. Absolutely. Craig, absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life, like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host, you know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents, but, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents? Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you, or was it times when they just talked to you? Oh, I think that's very clear. I mean, all of us <laughs> remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, Goodness, I sorry. still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause... And there's that sense of, of uh, that gap, because yeah. Yeah. while we talk throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and and I I cherish those moments probably more so than the lectures. (laughs) Of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but I mean, for for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship, and and that's what I remember. And even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to Italy a few years ago, but really the, the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even, you know, earth-shattering discussions. It's just normal discussions. And I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in, in, in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a, you know, a, an evening breeze? Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize his voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision. There is a reason why, and, and God certainly in his infinite power 
could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens, as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today, the book Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that, is that, it's got to be, God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons, Craig, and I think the first is, we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is, Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah. And Elijah builds this, you know, he puts, he puts together an altar and he puts together the wood on it, he puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord, but nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, an earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake, in the whirlwind. And a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still, small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean... I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. 
and and so I I really do think God is saying there, there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really, I think God has an, has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek him. And sometimes when we speak, seek the spectacular, we're, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your kindness. No, it, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, Amen. That, I'm really serious. That 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 sense of, and I think we've 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 lost this in in the modern day world. That that sense of, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the holy of holies, right? right. And that tremendous sense of of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so. Um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this. Um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass. And um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the, the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God, and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it, just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was, King Belshazzar, you're going to die tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here too, and I learned this years ago in in debate. Um, we have a tendency, human beings. Uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates as we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across. We tend to think if we lay, raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, exactly. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice, and people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, 
and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. You know, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular. But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day, almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us and that, as, as you're talking about, he wants, uh, he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies because the the temple curtain was torn That's right. so that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learn to listen, and perhaps <laughs> vice versa. Uh, God, I think... Please don't call my wife. <laughs> She's online, too, you say? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, though, that, that, that we can also uh, learn a lot from that. That, that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of, of intimacy with God that he really wants not only of us, but for us? It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers. You'll find it available available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme? Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it. We take a look at Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. 
Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we are the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that, that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the, the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. We are in struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream, and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy, kind of put us in the in the norm, and all of a sudden now that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public, and even executing people for not believing, that's that's okay. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism, and what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith in culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. We don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts, Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, faith group, is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help 
Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue? Because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to play in all of that. And now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that. Um, we're, we're really much more countercultural than we realize, and you know we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture; it's a, a it's a it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're as Christians part of that. There's this document this, we document in the book this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age, and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that 91% of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And, and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church, and so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those, those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do, was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And of course, the irony is, if you look at a couple of letter, uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the, the governmental engagement, um, as well as the, the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today. One of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that in a lot of ways, it's not just that the Bible has less authority. Almost every institution has less authority in Americans' lives than it did a decade or two decades ago. The Bible has less authority. The church has less authority. Government has less authority. Media, political leaders. Uh, we're living in a celebrity age, and that's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god-of-self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this is that, you know, the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read Scripture carefully, um, we can find that, you know, one of the bigger problems in, in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path 
towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that, you know, you start your, you, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith in that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some? And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over, is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones at fault, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church, and my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's, uh, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned, about the faithfulness of the, of, of the church. Um, you know, in Revelation, where John's writing about uh, his, his revelation of Jesus in the early chapters about the, the seven churches in, in, um, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he basically says, you know, the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in Philadelphia and Pergamum and, um, you know, Ephesus, that, that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh, in so many ways, in so many words. So I think this is one of the, the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme. Um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully. That there's there's a way to do this, and we we actually think that that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with the uh, truth in, from Scripture, not not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture. And so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do, was to help people have those difficult conversations in their, in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here, too, is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved. 
as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And, and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way, as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors, but there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works, and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that, it's truth and grace, uh, that, that love really is, is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in, in the book, we basically make the argument that, that, that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves, that we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know, restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and faith. Um, and, and a lot of times uh, their, their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that, because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue, and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion in giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of, like, what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're, you're asking, is, you know, we, I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy, uh, my co-author Gabe Lyons also has teenagers. We're in our mid forties or early forties, forty-two, and um, giving I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm forty-two years old, and and you know, so we kind of thought about like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook, and you kind of look up and it's you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is, how do we live and how do we? Um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern-day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to to write this this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project, and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling, was really our own our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It is it does answer the questions of a complicated age. Your, you know, their peers, their their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were we were really trying to fortify our own children to give them uh, confidence that that Christianity is going to matter in their in their lives. Again, for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. 
Is it important to, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research, that we that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often, as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, and the irony is, if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith, and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust, yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing, opposing viewpoints, behind someone who would have a very different point of view, uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And, um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest, uh, the most sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with, uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view, um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would, would seem to be at odds with his, you know, very message. And, um, and I think that's, that's so important for us as Christians today is to, to realize that, um, you know, think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by, uh, you know, argumentation about the, you know, Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize. And it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never dis- never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about, you know, the, the, the truth of Christ and, and, as he's changed our own lives. But, but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that, that, you know, we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, could he, in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or, or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate the love that God showed for us, that we understand, to a degree at least, the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross, we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do, and as David points out, not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply goodfaithbook.org. That's goodfaithbook.org. Book.org. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.